Uh, yeah, as Christian said today, I want to spend a little time and kind of tell you about my own personal journey, so hopefully you can bear with me as I tell a lot of little personal stories. But I've got kind of that classic, uh, started working for a theme park and ended up working on behalf of global poverty. That's what I've been up to for the last couple of decades, and so it's kind of um, been wild for me to think about this journey. That's, that's me when I was a whole lot younger on a wonderful show called Waterworld. I don't know, has anybody even heard of the movie Waterworld? It's like one of the worst movies ever, and we made a whole theme park attraction on it. Um, so that was me back then, and then this is just this last winter uh, in Uganda in a school for deaf children in Uganda. And so it's been kind of crazy, even as I look back on it now, to think, man, how did God get me from this kind of life in the theme park industry to uh, working for poor kids? So I'm going to try to tell you a little bit about how that came to be, um, what I learned on each step along the way, and in the end, because I've got to kind of wrap it up here, I'll have kind of the big four things that I've learned. I know you're supposed to have a three-part sermon, so hey, you get a bonus little tidbit here. Um, and I might have to keep looking up there to make sure it's following. Was that the next slide? All right, I'm a little out of order there. Um, is there a way to go to the one that was just the Universal Studios logo? There we go. So that was where I started. I uh, graduated college. I was a graphic design major, Bachelor of the Fine Arts. And it was my senior year in college that I thought, man, I really love telling stories. And so I was kind of faced with, do I go all the way back and start over and try to get a double major and, and get some kind of a writing degree? Or what a lot of friends were telling me and some reading that I was, was seeing was, hey, if you're interested in writing for film and TV, and that was kind of what I was, was interested in, you might be just as well to go to L.A. and start plugging in there and, and try to make connections and continue schooling there rather than going back to university. So that was what I did. Our, our goal, my wife and I, we met in college, we got married, we graduated, and we left. We didn't know anybody in Los Angeles. We just kind of moved out there and, and thought we would start life. And uh, I got to work on some, some kind of cool projects when I was out there. I think... I don't know. Do you have the... Well, maybe I'll just let you do the slides for me. Bryce, there you go. Uh, the first project I worked on was Back to the Future, and, and my job there was, it was kind of an entry-level job, um, but I was in charge of doing some of the props and the signs and helping to build out this big attraction. And Back to the Future was these huge IMAX screens, and we had motion simulators, and it was really kind of cool and a multi-million dollar project. Um, one thing I remember about Back to the Future was we got the movie working, this big IMAX movie, and we got the motion simulator cars working. And so all of us that had been working on this project for several months finally got in the cars, and we got to actually experience Back to the Future. And we thought, man, this is so cool. We're the first ones on the planet to do it. And uh, after about five minutes, we all stumble out of these motion simulators. We're all sick. We had a couple of guys throwing up all over the floor. And we thought, oh, good heavens, man. What have we built? This thing is terrible. Um, but we later discovered it's because the movie's moving in one direction and the cars were moving in the other. Nothing was synced up, and so our minds were just going crazy trying to make sense of, of how we were moving. But I worked on that. I also uh, had a chance to do Waterworld, um, as I mentioned earlier. And Waterworld was an, an interesting project um, where we had, it was written in the script, we're going to launch a plane through a wall, it's going to land in a lagoon, and it's going to blow up right in front of the crowd. I thought, oh, it sounds pretty cool in a script, but we had to do it. We had to figure out how to do that and then reset it and do it again and reset it and do it again and launch and crash and blow up this plane five times a day. And that was, that was also a lot of fun. Yeah, so here's the seaplane kind of crashing through. 
And another fun story there, the first time we ever tested that, we were sitting in the first row where all of the audience would be to see how big the splash was going to be. And it was about halfway up, we all panicked because the plane was coming in way too hot and ended up going over our safety rail and landing right in that first row. Uh, So again, good thing we were testing out before we had live people. Um, Another project I worked on was Jurassic Park ride. Um, There we go. Thank you. And and, uh, and this one did, again, a lot of kind of signs and props and, and telling stories. And I was also able to develop other theme park attractions we didn't do. The Power Rangers were big back in the 90s, and so we were going to do a Power Rangers show. And uh, also, we're thinking about doing a Marvel Mania show with all the Marvel superheroes. We were like 20 years ahead of our time. We thought nobody would be interested, so we scrapped it and didn't do it. But I tell you what was really interesting about working at Universal is I'm, I'm doing kind of all this really fun stuff, and I loved the work. It was really a blast. But I was one of the only Christians in in the entire workforce that I worked with. I knew of two other guys that were Christians, and and we didn't always interact a ton. Uh, So it was really interesting being a Christian in an environment where there just weren't any. And so I kind of relate it to uh, this photo of a tailgate with the one Bronco fan amidst a whole bunch of Chief fans. (laughs) Now, and I do have to say, my analogy here is the Christian is the Bronco fan, and the heathens are all the Chief fans. Maybe we should just pray for some grace and forgiveness there. I apologize for that bad uh, analogy. But it's a bit like that, being a Christian in a completely non-Christian environment, right? I was aware that everything that I did, every word that I said, how I behaved, how I acted, was a bit under a microscope, right? And so it was, it was really, it was interesting. And as I look back on it, man, it was a, a time that was easy to be alive and be alive for Christ because I was so aware of all of these interactions, uh, I also, I think because I was a Christian, and I wasn't like overt with it, right? I didn't go to meetings with the Bible, but had some things on my workspace and, and would talk about maybe going to Bible study and some of those kinds of things after work. So I think people knew I was a Christian. But I got into some crazy, crazy conversations. I think because I was a Christian, they thought I must have been a counselor. I must have some kind of easy access to God and to all things spiritual. So I remember one gal, uh, didn't really even know her that well, but she had lost an uncle over the weekend, and she came in on Monday and asked me if I knew if he was in heaven or hell. And I tell you, it's a pretty deep conversation to get into with somebody that you don't even know very well. I had another guy who had survived cancer, and he told me, you know, part of why he thought he survived cancer was because a lot of people were sending good thoughts. And so he asked me, is there power in good thoughts, or does a prayer have to be to God? And so we got into some pretty deep discussions about the power of prayer and and the sovereignty of God. I had somebody else come in, and they had just read the Left Behind books. I don't know if anybody familiar with the Left Behind books. These were best-selling books, kind of about the end times, novelizations of the end times. And, and she had just read them. She comes in. She's like, Kurt, do you guys believe this? Do you Christians believe all this? People are going to disappear off of airplanes, and that's how it happens? And I'm thinking, oh, man, I haven't even read these. I have no idea. So I ended up reading, I don't know, there were 13 of these books. I read all of them. Man, it's some time I can never get back. But I read them so that I could... <laughs> I could talk with her and, and try to understand the questions that she had. And so it was, it was interesting that even though the work I was doing was pretty superficial work, really, that I had these great deep conversations and, and my spiritual life was, was really alive. We had a great church that we were a part of. We had midweek Bible studies. And, and so spiritually, uh, it was really a rich time for me. Now, I told you early on that I... I went to Los Angeles, I wanted to be a screenwriter, right? That was, that was the big goal, um, and working at Universal was great and kind of gets you somewhat in the industry, but my, my big passion was to try to make it as a screenwriter. And so I had uh, developed a script. Um, this one's 
a notebook page that says First and Twelve. There we go. Uh, had written a script with a friend of mine called First and Twelve, and and I still love this story. It's uh, I shouldn't even say it because we wrote it. But anyway, all right. So it sounds a little arrogant, maybe. Um, First and Twelve was about. It was written about the NFL, and all of the NFL football players go on strike. And the owners decide, rather than try to find other players not as talented to play in the NFL, they decided to fill out all of their teams with little leaguers, with 12-year-old kids. And the story kind of tracks how all of a sudden everybody loves the 12-year-old kids better than they did the pros. They didn't have to worry about kind of some of the issues we see maybe in pro athletes. And so they love these 12-year-old kids, and then the script keeps going with the pro athletes coming back. Anyway, I won't ruin it for you. (laughs) Not that it's ever going to get made, but... um, So we wrote this script... And through a couple of different contexts, we were able to get it into the largest agency in Hollywood at the time. It's called Creative Artists. And again, this is back in the kind of mid-90s, but Tom Hanks was kind of the A-list star. Tom Hanks, Billy Crystal, all of these guys were represented by Creative Artists. And so you could even walk down the hall at Creative Artists, and the agents for all these major players are just talking across the hall and making these huge multi-million dollar movie deals happen. So we got an agent with Creative Artists. And he loved our script. He said it was fantastic. And what he wanted to do was, was package it and try to sell it. And what that meant was he would just send it out to every studio. And because it was from CAA, they could get right into all the major studios and see if anybody would buy this script. It was a Friday afternoon. I'll never forget. He called. And he said, Kurt, here's the really good news. The script is moving up. People are reading it and advancing it. And it's moving up in development. It's moving up at Mandalay and Disney. And there was a third studio that I've kind of long since forgotten. And he said, here's the good news. They're going to basically, because they all want to buy it, they're going to fight about it over the weekend, and they're going to have a bidding war. And on Monday, I'm going to be able to come back to you guys with an offer to buy your script. Now, I knew enough about Hollywood at that time to know screenplays were selling for a record amount. There's one called The Ticking Man that sold for $6 million. Another one, The Last Boy Scout, maybe you've seen, sold for about $4.5 million. And so all weekend, I'm just thinking, Wow. Even if I split it with my writer, if they take 10% from the agency minus taxes, I'm going to make somewhere in the neighborhood of $400,000 this weekend. That's a pretty good weekend, right? Now, to be real honest, the sad thing is I was praying, but what I was praying, I'm really kind of ashamed about it, to be honest. Because what I prayed to God that whole weekend long was, God, if you sell this script, then I'm going to use that money and resource and whatever you've given me, and I'm going to use it for you. Right? I'm trying to bargain with the God of the universe that if he just gives me this $300,000 or whatever it ended up being, then I would decide to go ahead and use my gifts and skills towards his ministry. And that was the prayer that I had. Probably not surprisingly, Monday morning came around and, and we got a call back and he said, guys, the script is dead. Nobody wanted it. And we were you know, heartbroken, certainly, but... But what he said was, you know, one of the studios that kind of got all the way up to the head of development, they just felt like the timing wasn't right. And he said at Disney, they were going to buy it, but just two days before they had purchased another kid's sports movie, it ended up being The Mighty Ducks. And so because they had just bought that, (laughs) they didn't want to buy our wonderful story. And so we asked our agent, David Stein, he said, so what do we do now? What do we do with the script? Who else do we show it to? And he said, nobody, everybody's seen it. Everybody in town has seen it. If you want, you can rewrite it and you can bring it back in about a decade, but but nobody wants the story. So it was tough to be close to what I thought was a dream and to just have that taken away. Now, I'll come back to that a little bit later, but so while I'm at Universal um, and really did like the work I was doing, I was at a large corporate event. We have these kind of big 
um, kind of rah-rah sessions, right? We get the whole company together. Our CEO gets up there, and he's trying to inspire us, and he's telling us how important our work is, that we're making dreams come true at Universal Studios, and we're making families happier. We're making the world a better place. And I'm just sitting there thinking, man, my job, I think, is to entertain people by creating a Flintstones live musical, by trying to sell $12 Cokes in a little plastic cup. I don't feel like I'm trying to make the world better for anybody. So I vividly remember, in fact, I've kept this notebook. I only wrote one note that day in this entire meeting, and it was, um, trust God and work in the ministry. Now, I'm not one of those guys that feels like, boy, God is always telling me exactly what to do. But looking back again, this is one of those moments where I think he was giving me a push to look at something else. And so my, my goal was, how can I use whatever I've learned here at Universal Studios in the theme park industry, how can I use that and apply it more directly to ministry work? So I started to ask myself, what kind of organizations are out there that do stories, that develop stories and kind of do entertainment that might be a little bit more along the lines of what I'm passionate about? The only organization I could think of is Focus on the Family. We talked a little bit about Focus on Wednesday. But Focus exists as a family help brand to help parents, to help make strong marriages. And, and so that was where I worked for about six years. And I got to work on some fun projects. Some of you guys might be familiar with Adventures in Odyssey. Uh, we did book publishing, so we got to do a lot of book covers. We did radio theater, Chronicles of Narnia. So got to do some really fun things still in that story and entertainment piece, but, but maybe a little bit more valuable or important in my eyes than, than some of the entertainment stuff I was doing at Universal. So while my profession was much more aligned with kind of being Christ-centered, what was really fascinating is my personal ministry was non-existent. So it was interesting at, at Universal, I felt like uh, one of these penguins here. Oh, there we go. Sorry, I was moving too fast. Because we all looked the same. We all voted the same. We all talked the same. We all dressed the same. I was now one of 800 Christians in an organization, not one of the only ones. And so it was interesting that where I had this kind of thriving personal ministry, even though I didn't know it, didn't expect it, didn't seek it out, now that I was at focus, I kind of lost my identity. We were all Christians. And what was really odd is when I thought about it, we had friends from focus, and then we had friends from our church, and, I, and just everybody I knew was a Christian. And all of a sudden, I didn't have any avenues, any vehicles to engage with folks who maybe didn't follow Jesus. The other weird thing that happens when you work in a ministry sometimes, and it might even be here in college, when, when you've got so much kind of prayer, and we had chapels, and we had devotions every day, we had a lot of spiritual activity, my wife and I kind of didn't get real involved with our local church. We just felt like I was doing that all as my job, why would I go do that on the weekends? And I don't know if you guys ever feel that way here, you've got chapels, you've got a lot of things going on throughout the day, does it make it even tougher to get involved outside of normal hours? Does it make it tough to get involved with a local church? Does it make it tough to uh, do Bible studies and do some of those other things on your own time? It's weird when, when religion becomes your vocation, all of a sudden it doesn't become a part of your normal life. At least that was a struggle for me. Well, as my uh, time with Focus, one of the great opportunities I had is I got to travel around to our international offices. Focus has offices in every region around the world, and, and this is a picture from South Africa. And I had a chance to do some training in South Africa, and I did the training, and we kind of took a long walk, and we ended up with this view. Uh, this isn't my photo, but this was kind of the view that we saw. And this is called the Valley of a Thousand Hills. And the Valley of a Thousand Hills, as you can see, man, it's quite beautiful, right? There's homesteads and huts littering the landscape. 
uh, just beautiful, kind of serene African environment. And so as I'm looking at it, my colleague from South Africa comes up and he says, you know, uh, this is very famous, actually, the, the Valley of a Thousand Hills. And I said, well, I'm sure it is. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. He said, no, no, no. It's famous because the highest HIV prevalence in the entire country is right here. He said, in this valley alone, there are 300,000 AIDS orphans living by themselves. And that was one of those moments, if, if you were here on Monday, that, that just starts to crush me. And I, I get this heart and this passion uh, for justice for these kids. And, and that ought not be so. And what can we do? And then he took me a little bit further on their property. He took me to a place called Itemba. Itemba, which means hope. And Itemba was kind of this, this new... Um, this new orphanage concept that they were trying. They didn't have orphanages in South Africa, but what they would do is they would take couples and they would move them onto these homes that they had built in this compound called Itemba. And these couples would then become the mom and dad and they would bring in six, seven, eight, sometimes even ten AIDS orphans and they would live in this this house and they would basically live there as a complete family. They weren't officially adopted. There wasn't really a foster care system, but they operated as a completely intact family until all of those children were out of the house. And here I am, a guy with a background in theme parks, loves to tell stories and graphic design, and I came home to my wife, and I said, I want to move to South Africa and do that. And God bless her for being so patient and honest and kind of asking probing questions and not crushing my spirit, but helping me think through, man, like, what in my life would make me a good missionary? Nothing. I don't particularly like people. That's probably a problem for one. Uh, I have no idea about the South African culture. I mean, it's a crazy history, as you guys are probably aware. Um, I can speak some English, and they speak English there, but I don't know how to speak Afrikaans. There's, there's so much about that culture that I don't I would have been a disaster as a missionary. And if I look back on it, all I knew was that I wanted to do that. I wanted to help there, and the only idea I had was, well, if I want to help there, I must have to be a missionary. And I wonder for some of you if it's kind of the same way. Maybe you want to be in ministry, you want to do something on behalf of God, but you don't know what it is. And maybe we default back to some of those tried and true things. I think I want to be a pastor, a youth pastor. Man, we need those. Certainly we need people there. But you don't have to be in ministry to do ministry. And I think it's always key to understand what are those strengths that God has put in us uniquely and how do we use those rather than trying to become something we're not. So at about this time where I'm thinking, man, should we, should we uproot the family and go live in South Africa, or is there a different way to serve? And uh, my wife and I are having this debate and, and discussions, and I saw a movie that's absolutely changed my life. I think it's one of the most important movies ever made. I think Emma owns it, so if you need to watch it, you can go over to her dorm anytime. Just offering that up and you can watch it. So the movie that we saw that absolutely changed our lives. Did I break it? Well, the movie was The Three Amigos. <laughs> now, you guys, who's seen The Three Amigos? Anybody? Because I'm going to probably ruin the plot. So if you haven't seen it, kind of shame on you because it's like 20 years old and you should have seen it by now. But So Three Amigos about these three guys. They think they're gunfighters and they're hired to protect this little Mexican village. Right? But the Mexican village is, and, and these three gunfighters are so outnumbered by El Wapo and all the bandits. Right? So the Three Amigos have to figure out a way. How can we train up and how can we get... Um, all of these villagers to kind of help us defeat El Wapo. And Ned Niederlander, if you remember, in this great moment, asks the villagers, hey, what do you do really well? Who remembers what they did really well? 
They can sew, right? They got this great skill of sewing. And so they make all of these costumes and they, they end up defeating the bad guy through their gift of sewing. And, and seriously, the message I took from that was, man, God has given me some unique gifts and skills. It's not to be a missionary. But he's given me the ability, hopefully, to tell some stories, to be creative, to be a designer. And there, is there a way that I can use those skills for that cause? And so rather than trying to become something I'm not, can I use the gifts and, and skills that God has put in me to do that work? And that would eventually lead me to Compassion International, where I've worked for the last seven years. And I love working for Compassion. I mean, it's a tough organization not to love, um, because again, we get to work with some of the poorest children on the planet, and it's, it's such a worthwhile cause. But what's really fascinating is about the last couple of projects that I've done for Compassion. So just this last summer, we launched a virtual reality experience. So we're taking, you know, you've probably seen those Oculus goggles and uh, 360 video. And so we are telling the stories of one of our alumni, a child who grew up in poverty in Haiti. And we went to Haiti and we filmed him and we filmed his home and the streets where he grew up. And we filmed this all in 360 immersive video. And then we took it on the road over the summer at festivals, primarily to engage guys like you in the story of compassion. And so for the first time, people are able to put on these goggles and see what a house looks like in Haiti. They're able to watch a mom prepare a meal for her kids, able to see the streets and the schools that these kids live in. And it was interesting because the people that I used to help me with some of the graphics, to help me with some of the filming, to help me with some of the audio, were people that I all knew from either Universal or from Focus. And then I also got to work on a project that was called the Mobile Experience. And, and the Mobile Experience is a large semis, and there's seven of these. Uh, I don't know if anybody's seen them, but they're huge semis. They basically park in front of a church or a Christian bookstore, and the sides pop out, and they're these, these kind of huge behemoths. And we've developed stories for our kids using, again, a lot of the audio drama stuff that we had learned at Focus on the Family. And so we're telling these kids testimonies in about 12 to 15 minutes with full music and actors and sound production while you're walking through recreations of the rooms that these kids grew up in. And so the fascinating thing again here is that I was, that's how I started my career, doing props for Back to the Future and building little set pieces and, and little walls and creating a western street and all this stuff that I did for Universal. Now God was kind of taking those skills and, and he was using them more directly for ministry work. And so I've, I've had these three stops along the way from Universal Studios to Focus to Compassion. And it's pretty fascinating to look back and see there really is a thread through all of those. Now, one of the things I, I, I think I always struggle with, man, am I doing the absolute right thing, right? Even to leave Los Angeles, I remember asking our pastor, should we leave Universal? Should we leave Los Angeles to go to Colorado Springs and to work for Focus? And I, I just didn't feel any peace. And it was one of those times when I keep praying, man, God, show me exactly the way that you want me to go and what you want me to do. And I didn't feel like I got any answer. You guys ever pray for clear direction and don't get it? Well, I ended up asking my pastor, you know, what do you advise? How do, I, how do I go forward? And he said, Kurt, here's the deal. A lot of times God doesn't care, right? If you stay here, he's going to serve and he's going to work through you. If you're willing to be used, he's going to work through you here in Los Angeles. He can also work with you in Colorado Springs. So I think sometimes we always think there's only one way and there's one right decision. And looking back and kind of seeing how my career is connected, I don't think it's because I always made the right choice. I just think it was because God made sure to kind of connect things and, and drive me into the right places. So what are the things that I've learned along the way? The first thing that I learned is that work is a blessing, not a curse. 
I think sometimes, and I don't know if you guys feel this way, but if you're getting close to the end of your college career, you're now looking at 40 or 50 years working in some vocation. That can be frightening. What if I don't like it? Work doesn't sound fun, right? There's other things that I'd love to do than have to work. But I think the reality is, man, God has created us to work, right? Work was not a result of the fall. We were asked to work before the fall, right? We needed to take care of the land and be good stewards of the creation that God had given us. So I think he's created us to be creators. He's created us to be active and engaged. And I love this verse from Colossians. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that you're serving. No matter what job you have, if it's selling popcorn or T-shirts in a theme park industry or if it's working for a ministry, God calls us to be excellent in whatever we do. The second thing that I learned is that you don't have to be in a ministry to do ministry. Right? Again, this goes back to that time at, at Universal when I had great conversations, great depth. Spiritually, I was never growing more than I was at Universal. And I came and worked in a ministry, and all of a sudden, my spiritual life became kind of stagnant. So not only do you not have to be in a ministry to do ministry, I think it can actually be harder sometimes. Part of the reason why it can be harder sometimes is the next little thing that I learned, and that's that Christian are people too. Right? If you ever want to know if it's just heaven on earth to work in a church, go ask somebody who works in a church if it's hard. Right? A lot of times Christians can be difficult. Christians are people too. I remember way back in my universal days, I'd get bored in meetings. And so I used to make tick marks of words that people would say over and over. Right? If somebody says like all the time, I just make tick marks. Or um. And I had this one boss, Paul LaFrance. I probably shouldn't use his whole name, but I doubt he's going to hear about this. Uh, Paul LaFrance was the Shakespeare of curse words. In one meeting, there was 20 of us in a room, so everybody was talking, it wasn't just him, and it was a one-hour meeting, he dropped 132 F-bombs. They were verbs, they were nouns, they were adjectives. I mean, it was, after a while, it was actually it was kind of beautiful to watch. Like, how's he going to turn that into a sentence? And he did. Entire sentences of nothing but F-bombs. So I came from that environment at Universal, but you know what I liked was that I always knew where I stood. I knew if I was making a mistake. I knew if I was making somebody mad. Everybody kind of wore that on their sleeves. We'd have a lot of emotion, but we would get it out. And then I came to focus and even sometimes at compassion, and we have this kind of passive-aggressive behavior as Christians. We don't want to challenge anybody. We want to be nice. We feel like if we're in conflict that suddenly our whole relationship is gone. And it was tough because if you know passive-aggressive behavior, all those feelings and emotions are still there. They're just underneath, right? And then all of a sudden they bubble up and they erupt in some unhealthy ways. So I'm not, I should be careful. I'm not advocating that we start throwing out F-bombs like crazy. That's, that's not the goal. But we need to understand that just because we're with other Christians doesn't mean we're not going to have relationship problems. Right? Christians are people too. We may be forgiven, but man, we are certainly not perfect. So if you go into ministry work, go into that knowing um, that people, Christians are people too. The last thing I learned is that God's faithful. So I go all the way back to that prayer that I gave. And I, I told God, right, I want $300,000 in exchange for him. Give, it's like a ransom note. In exchange for $300,000, I'll start doing your ministry. And man, what's interesting, if I look back at it, he actually answered that prayer. Now, I don't have the $300,000, but he's been able to kind of shepherd me and, and keep me from layoffs and, and keep me gainfully employed for the last 25 years. And he's actually now given me opportunity, like I'm doing today, to actually be able to talk about him, his ministry, and what he's doing. 
So it wasn't the way I expected, but I'm able to tell stories. I get to tell stories about the kids who've come up through Compassion. I get to tell stories about poor kids who have no voice and bring those to audiences here in the United States. And it's pretty cool to go all the way back, and God was faithful. He answered that prayer, not in the way that I wanted, not in the way I expected, but as I look at it, probably a whole lot more beautifully than I could have ever done myself. Right? Have I, at 25 years old, 26, all of a sudden had several hundred thousand dollars living in California, and that may not have ended well for me. I think it certainly wouldn't have led me to Ethiopia to adopt our kids. It would have changed the, the tenor of my entire life. And so I'm so grateful, as painful as it was, that God answered that prayer in a way that I wasn't expecting. So these are the four big things that I've learned along the way. And I think what I want to encourage you guys with, again, is, is just be open, right? That's what God really wants from us. He's created every one of us, every one of you guys, with unique skills and talents and gifts. You're the only one who's created, the only one with that unique assembly of gifts. So just be open to where God's going to lead you, right? And it might surprise you. You may think right now, man, I want to work in a church, and that's, that's what I want to do, and that's where I want to go. But he may surprise you and open up other opportunities. I really believe what God really wants is he wants our hearts. He wants us to be open to following him, open to serving him, and we'll have a multiple of opportunities to do that in our lives. I want to thank you so much for your time. Let me pray for us, and then I think I'm a little late. I need to let you guys get out and get to class. Father God, I am so thankful for... Um, for the way you have made us all unique, and we all have different skills and different talents. And Lord, you are a creator. The first thing you did was create, and you've given us that spirit as well to create, to build, to work, to use our skills towards your glory. Lord, whether that be in ministry or whether that be in the so-called secular world, we just pray that we do excellent things, that we serve you, that we uphold your banner high. So when somebody looks at us, they say, man, I want to know more about that Jesus because of what I see in that person. Father, thank you for those gifts. Pray that you bless uh, the people of Sterling. Uh, bless those, Lord, that are, are suffering right now with the loss that the Sterling community has had over this week. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.